everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. The convergence of content commerce is going to have one of the biggest impacts. You've got media companies that are converging into commerce. They all want to be transactional. They all want a bigger slice of the pie. They all want more lifetime value extraction from their readership. And then I think on the commerce side, you see brands and retailers who are obviously seeing the cost rising of customer acquisition in the traditional sense and creating really rich content is the only way to do that. If it seems like a new D2C brand is launching every day, that's because it's true. In every industry, across every vertical, on every channel, the next big thing is competing for your attention, your clicks, and our cash. As a consumer, sifting through all that noise and filtering out which companies are worth your time can be a daunting task. And as a brand, it begs the question, how do you set yourself apart from the ever-growing pack? One option is to find a trusted source to vouch for you, which is why we brought Matthew Hayes on the show. Matthew Hayes is the co-founder of The Fascination, a marketplace with the goal to lift up some of the most worthy D2C brands coming to market. The Fascination is a product recommendation and reviews publication focused on emerging and purpose-driven direct-to-consumer brands, large and small. Users on the platform have the ability to filter through vetted brands, digest the company's story, and even transact all in one place. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Matthew dives into lessons he learned while building Lisa Sleep, the original D2C player. Also, why curation is so important in the rapidly expanding D2C space, and his take on why the convergence of media and commerce will be the next big thing that impacts e-commerce. Plus, I even pull out a few stories from his trip to Richard Branson's Necker Island. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash up next in commerce. All right, on to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at mission.org. Today, I'm chatting with Matthew Hayes, the co-founder at The Fascination and previously on the founding team at Lisa Sleep. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on. So I was hoping we could start with maybe Lisa Sleep because when I saw that, I'm like, whoa, you were like an OG in the D2C space. (laughs) And I thought that'd be a good jumping off point. Yeah, yeah. So I was part of the founding team at Lisa uh, yeah, we, we launched it back in 2014 uh, before everything exploded, right? Yeah. So we we were very early. Uh, we were one of the first 
bed in a box brands to get out there, you know, tough, tough needle came maybe, I don't know, six months to a year before us, Casper was literally right before us. And then we were out, uh, right around Thanksgiving of 2014. And, you know, that whole industry just exploded under our feet. You know, we had the wind at our back for most of our tenure, mm-hmm. uh, especially our growth years. But, you know, things are a lot different now. And uh, it's it's a different ball game in terms of launching and growing a D2C brand in 2021. Yeah. So. so tell me a bit about the differences. I mean, obviously the world is very different and there's a lot of new trends coming out about like what to expect over the next couple of years. But are there any lessons that you took away from Lisa that are still relevant or is the world just like in such a different place now? No, I think it's still really relevant. I think a lot of the stuff that we were learning uh, as we grew is incredibly relevant to, you know, the way that we launched the fascination, the way that brand founders are thinking about things now. When we first launched in 2015, cost of acquisition were beautiful. Like we yeah. all day we could scale. The auctions across Facebook and Google were very, maybe a, a fifth of what they are now, just in terms of competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the mattress industry Specifically, there was 180 entrants after we launched. Yeah. So a huge amount of volume coming into that space and just generally in D2C. So the cost of acquiring just pure play digital customers was going up. Mm-hmm. And people were seeing the writing on the wall and you know, starting to diversify into brick and mortar. And so I think you know, that was one of the things that we realized is we've got to have a diverse channel mix. And so we struck the partnership with West Elm. You know, we we leaned more into Amazon. We looked more at international, and we actually set up our own owned brick and mortar uh, mortar stores. So, I think the combination of of that brand awareness and exposure helped our brand tremendously. Whereas, you know, a lot of brands stuck it out, stayed pure plays, and um, they learned a costly lesson in in spending overspending on acquisition. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely the biggest thing that I see from the, you know, past couple years or past decade is like before you could just focus on paid acquisition, like throw a bunch of money at it and no one's really, you know, they're going to come to you either way. And then now it uh, seems like a lot of the, I guess the brands that are ahead are more media companies now. And that there's like a big spectrum between like paying for people versus organic or versus starting a community and then, you know, launching a product to them. So it does feel like a definitely a different world than just like pay and grow and scale up yeah. as you go. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing that a lot actually, and I think our notion of like how to build a profitable business with the fascination is quite a bit different. You know, we're not we're not a pure play owned D 2 C brand selling our own products. You know, we're essentially a marketplace. But what we've done is we've seen the success that media companies have had in building an audience that's super loyal. You know, whether that's the hostel or morning brew or the skim, mm-hmm. you know, all of this audience aggregation and demand with these customer demos, there's so much that you can do with it. And so we saw a bit of an opportunity in sort of the fragmentation that was happening across D2C brands were popping up literally every day. Mm-hmm. And you start to become a little leery of, you know, is this a good brand? Is this a good product? Is this aligned with my values and tastes? And we saw this need for curation across all, you know, all spectrums of D2C, really. Uh, and we saw an opportunity to really create a media platform and sort of a commercial platform around that. Mm-hmm. 
So let's dive into the fascination a bit. So it's a marketplace. You guys are curating D2C brands. I saw you have filters focused on like the product technical quality, also the soul of the company. Like, tell me a little bit more about the fascination. How do you allow brands into the marketplace? Yeah. And any other details around the platform? I mean, people are basically referring to it as a a marketplace meets magazine, uh, which I think is an accurate description. It's basically at its core, it's a product recommendation and reviews publication specifically focused on emerging and purpose-driven direct consumer brands. So in much the same way that Wirecutter or The Strategist reviews top products and writes kind of those objective third-party reviews and recommendations uh, as a media publisher, we're really doing that, but we're focusing it on a subset of these kind of D2C brands that are new and emerging and have purpose-driven values. And the idea is to create a single platform where people can come and discover new brands. They can read reviews and research those brands and products, and they can shop deals all in one place. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a a linear play from discovery all the way through to purchase. Yeah. So who are some of your favorite brands on the platform right now? Oh, there's so many good ones. Um, Gotta pick your favorite children. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm gonna get in trouble for this. We've got, we've got badges across the site, which are really cool. The badges kind of call out things like women and minority-led businesses or organic mm-hmm. or made in the USA. And so like Girlfriend Collective is one of our women and minority-led brands. Uh, House is another. Yeah, you know, had House do, on. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they do the low alcohol aperitifs and, you know, great products, great brand story. Delicious. Uh, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I was just chatting with uh, the founders of Huron, which is a men's skincare line. Mm-hmm. Awesome story. And then we've got, you know, kind of the big names that you'd expect. Like we've got Allbirds on the platform. We've got Warby joining soon if they're not up already any day now. We've got Untuck It. So, you know, it's a nice mix of kind of the sort of the old school D2C incumbents with a lot of really cool emerging brands that honestly, like, you know, I'm intimately involved in direct consumer and a lot of these brands I hadn't heard of for the first time. So mm-hmm. if you think about like, as it broadens out the halo from the bullseye of, you know, our, our tightest demos, there's going to be so many people that are discovering these brands for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really what we want. You know, we want some of these big names to attract people into the site. And then we want a lot of our awesome emerging brands and products to be discovered while you're there. Mm-hmm. That's great. So how are you convincing these larger brands to join the platform? Because I'm thinking your space, I think also is very competitive. I mean, the world right now is headed to a place where everyone wants curated collections. I mean, they don't want to spend a bunch of time everywhere. They want it all in one place. We had the CEO of Fast on talking about like, you need the one-click checkout and be able to allow people just to check out instantly and not have to bulk it into a cart. Like, it seems like your space is very competitive too. How are you convincing the Warby Parkers and, you know, the <laughs> older brands who probably are approached by quite a few marketplace platforms to, you know, oh, yeah. join us? Like, how are you, why are these brands going with you? Well, I think we've really focused a ton on the story and the user experience and just the overall look and feel of our digital product and what we stand for. Uh, I think it's also in our favor that, you know, we we have been to see operators ourselves and we can really empathize to to what these founders need and 
you know, we've been fortunate to be in the in the community for several years now. So we had a few close partners that were kind of our spring pad, if you will. Mm-hmm. Not to mention Nick Sharma as an advisor who's great at pulling in brands. He was on our show too. Man, yeah, we're just I know. crushing it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, between that and like, we had some some really amazing brands reach out the first day that just totally shocked us. You know, we have, we have a type form application that comes through and we had a couple hundred brands, including some of the biggest names in the space on day one, which you know, it was super exciting. And just um, a lot of founders getting really excited by seeing their brands mentioned in our roundups or, you know, seeing products being shared. So I think that the validation that we're, we're starting to provide and really empathizing with what brand founders need is something that they're really clamoring for. And I think word gets out fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So is there any trends you're seeing right now around what customers are most excited about? I mean, I'm guessing you have all this data now and you can see, okay, a bunch of people are coming on during quarantine and buying house. We need, you know, another type of aperitif, you know, or something to offer that's similar because we see so much, you know, engagement there. Any trends? I think that one of the things that we've seen is that's really interesting is, you know, our roundup pieces on brands that are making an impact uh, and just the social impact stories are really, really resonating uh, with consumers. And the brands are sharing, sharing the stories, which is just amplifying the message that much more. So the general consumer sentiment that we're getting sort of from a qualitative perspective is, is that a platform like this is very much needed and like, thank you for building it. So, you know, I don't think it's even halfway to where we want it to be, or it could be in terms of, you know, the overall product development evolution, but we're going to get there quickly. Yeah. So how, when you're, you know, you just said that certain stories that you're telling around the brands and the social good aspect of it are really resonating. Is that your main play when it comes to acquiring new customers onto your platform is by writing good pieces of content, having the brand share it to get in front of their audiences as well? Or how do you think about acquiring new customers? Yeah, I mean, customer acquisitions, it's always a challenge for a a marketplace like this. And that's why from day one, we didn't approach it as a pure play commercial marketplace where you're just aggregating and selling products. That's from a consumer perspective, that's really not serving like the overall need that we're trying to address, which is discovery, research, and shop and convert. Mm-hmm. And so the research aspect of that is really where we're going to focus a lot of time and attention and work. And what I mean by that is writing really in-depth, thorough product reviews that are authentic, that are meaningful, that consumers value, and ultimately Google values that content really highly as well. And so what I'm getting at is the SEO and organic traction uh, in search is going to be a big part of, of how we grow uh, organically, keep our acquisition costs low. Uh, there's a lot of performance marketing things that we can and will be doing. You know, brands have had tremendous interest in doing paid marketing partnerships, whether that's kind of whitelisting on Facebook or uh, sponsoring newsletters or you know, any sort of sponsorships. I think there's a tremendous amount of demand for that. And we really are just dipping our toes into the very first test there. So, and then having, as I said, our brands amplify our content is also, it's just going to be a, a latent organic way 
to continue to build low cost audience. I mean, I think if you think about the way that Lisa scaled and a lot of those 2015 brands scaled, we know that we can't run the same playbook and build a sustainable business. And so, <laughs> you know, as we were launching early days, it's like, damn, being a media company is really hard. Like coming up with yes. really <laughs> engaging content every single day, pumping it out, like, you know, the morning brews and web smiths of the world. You know, I, I take my hat off to those guys because it's not easy, but mm -hmm. I think you can already start to see the rewards that we're going to reap from that. Yep. So what channels are you, well, maybe actually first, let me talk about the content piece. Cause that's top of mind for me is a lot of people say you just need to create good content and you know, that's the key to finding great people. Like how do you go about brainstorming something that will resonate? Are you actually going through maybe search trends and kind of starting there to see what's going on in the industry and then writing articles around that? Or is it purely just like, I want to talk about, you know, house's story and we're going to talk about, you know, what they're doing behind the scenes. Like, how do you brainstorm content? Uh, it's a mix of all of that, actually. So we've got, you know, we've got a number of things that we're covering at any one time. A lot of it is when we have new brands onboarded, we've got to write the brand story and we've got to review their products. That's kind of phase one. And that's like an ongoing process as we get up and running. But yeah, we're also looking at industry trends, category-wide trends search trends around specific products or competitive products to see how we can write, you know, really compelling content that, that meets that need. And then we're thinking about kind of the cultural relevance, uh, things that are happening topically uh, in everyday life. And we've got a couple of different personas that we look at. And so what are our personas caring about? What's their headspace? You know, and then what are the things that are happening in their specific lives at this very moment in mid-January? So as we think through those things, you start to surface really relevant content ideas. And that's sort of where our social content, a lot of our editorial content comes from. That's generally how we do it. Cool. And what are some of the channels that you're most excited about right now? Or you think that there's, you know, untapped potential are you sticking with the Facebook where of course, you know, the Facebook, <laughs> are you sticking Stop with Facebook? I like that. <laughs> hey, they used to be the, right? <laughs> yeah, they dropped that. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, it's still pretty relevant, but yeah, are you sticking with Facebook? Like a lot of other brands, you know, still say that's the best place to reach customers. Are you trying out a bunch of new channels and experimenting? How are you thinking about that? Uh, so Facebook isn't a priority for us right now, other than to the extent that we use it for paid social advertising, I would say mm -hmm. it's there. Of course it's there. But when we think about building audience, Twitter has been a nice surprise for me. I'm really, I'm really bummed that I didn't get myself on Twitter several years ago, but <laughs> sharing our audience development teams doing an awesome job of engaging, you know, that really passionate community. I think LinkedIn has sneaky organic reach and potential. And, you know, we found that a lot of our brand founders are sharing our content there and we're getting a lot of engagement. They're more organic than right. Cause LinkedIn is like super expensive when it comes to advertising. Yeah. All organic. Yeah. Um, and then stuff like TikTok is interesting. You know, as we look at uh, really organic product reviews, um, doing things with founders, I think that's something that we're going to be looking at uh, as well as Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Clubhouse, I think where it's at. I'm on there. I listen to people. I think you can connect with a lot of 
great people on there. Uh, I'm still not sure about the unstructured format sometimes where things can go on for hours and hours, but yeah, it seems like there's a lot of potential there to at least connect with new people. I don't yeah, know about a lot of selling. A lot of untapped potential. Yeah. So I saw that you were also an investor in Grin. So our guest yesterday that we had on was, that's her favorite new tool that she's looking into. And I had not heard of it before. And I'm interested to hear a little bit about how are you thinking about influencers? Like what attracted you to Grin? Where's that market headed over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been doing influencer marketing since 2012, honestly. And I think there's going to be a lot more regulation around it, for one. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be buttoned up as you execute it. Yeah, so I think, you know, that's that's just part of the industry growing up. You know, a lot of these viners are now celebrities in their own right, you know, with huge followings and PR teams. And and so the, the days of um, just engaging with an influencer that way are, are kind of over. Um, it's really about kind of adopting a, a micro slash nano strategy where you're activating pockets of, you know, a couple thousand followers to up to 50 to 100,000 followers and doing it more strategically at scale. You know, that's where I see a lot of brands and, and agencies having success doing this stuff. Um, so Grin's just a really awesome tool for managing that entire workflow, keeping you really on top of things. You can search for uh, lookalikes of an influencer. So if you have someone or something that you want to find influencers around, it's great for that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And how do you think about attribution and analytics around, you know, utilizing influencers and seeing if you're really getting the most bang for your buck? Yeah. I mean, well, especially with iOS 14 and everything that's going on there, it's always been an imperfect science. You know, we've, we never assumed that we would have even close to perfect attribution on influencer activations. So, you know, we always treated it very top of funnel and you do what you can in terms of attribution. So, you know, you give them trackable UTM parameters, you give them bespoke promo codes with their name, you give them a landing page experience, uh, everything that you can do to, to cookie the user uh, on your website and get them into what feels like uh, an authentic kind of customized experience for that loyal following. Um, that's going to increase conversion. I think uh, as much as anything. And the vast majority of like influencer activity is probably happening on mobile anyway. So wherever you're sending them, it's gotta be very mobile optimized. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause if they switch over your attributions lost at that point. Yep. Yeah. And I think that authentic piece, like you're saying, I mean, it has to fit your brand. The person has to not just yeah. be saying something just to say it. And yeah, I think taking that longer term approach, more of like a partnership and someone who is going to be a part of your brand, even if they start out smaller and grow with you, will be way better than just trying to target a big name because I normally don't really put any weight in products that large celebrities are showcasing just because I'm like, I just know how much money you're getting paid. And I highly doubt you're using that teeth whitener. So. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to that point, a lot, a lot of brands are, are basically incentivizing on a kind of a CPA or per sale basis with like you're saying, a subset of really loyal influencers and affiliates that, you know, they, they can send that influencer, you know, their fall collection of bags and apparel or whatever, and they can get 10 or 15 posts out of it. If, if the influencer continues to see performance. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's the new way of 
kind of doing things nowadays. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, viewing it from like a content generation perspective of they're not just, Mm -hmm. you know, posting once trying to get their product bought, but they're also creating an article or blog post that you can repurpose and pull quotes from or whatever it may be. Yeah. And more frequency drives more conversion. So the more you get that brand in front of your audience, Mm -hmm. the more likely it is they'll finally take action. Yep. So I want to talk a bit about mentorship, which I always love asking questions around this. I saw that you went to Necker Island a few days ago, a few days, a few years (laughs) ago. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) A few years ago. And of course, you know, Richard Branson's island. So I want to hear, what did you learn there? What kind of advice did you hear? I saw, I think Damon John was there, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, Marie Forleo, Mm -hmm. like a bunch of great people to learn from. And I want to kind of hear about, you know, the stories behind going there. What'd you learn? All that. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a life changing experience for sure. Damon is still pretty close to us and in, in the business. Uh, he got involved with Lisa after we met, um, especially with their one ten program. You know, really just learned from him like the hustle, the grind. You know, he he told his story about how he came up with Fubu and and really built that business from zero. And so, yeah. talking about fundraising with him is is a different is a different sort of thing. Tim was on the island who, you know, I was kind of fanboying out when I met Tim actually, because I was obsessed with, you know, four hour work week, four hour body. And here I'm chatting with him in person. We actually started talking about going up against Casper. And at the time, uh, we were we were pushing pretty heavily into podcasts and Casper was buying up literally every podcast that we could find that we wanted to go after. Yeah. And funnily enough, he would really push like a micro strategy to us. He said, you need to go after these very small podcasts that aren't affiliated yet that are, you know, have kind of nascent, but growing followings. Mm -hmm. And we did, we found like 10 of those, especially in comedy and gaming. And we stayed with them for years and they ended up crushing for us. So that's great. And did you secure long-term partnerships with those companies? Okay. I think we're still working with a few of them, honestly. (laughs) Oh, that's great. We just completely sapped the audience. Everyone's yeah. got a Lisa now. Yeah. <laughs> and then we talked with Seth. Uh, David and I chatted with Seth Godin, who's sort of a marketing genius. He's mm-hmm. he's like the professor of modern day marketing. And, um, you know, at the time we had done around 30 million in our first year of sales, which was, you know, just crazy. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about making this leap called crossing the chasm. Basically, yeah. You know, when you're attacking the early adopter market and you're doing quite well, there's a point at which you have to, quote unquote, cross the chasm uh, and, and reach the broader demographic of people. And so I don't remember the tactics that he talked about, but I, he always impressed that idea um, of like, okay, now we've got we've to broaden our sphere of influence. Yeah. We still use that phrase today. Mm-hmm. And then Marie Forleo was there and... We had a lot of really good, we like chatted one-on-one several times because, you know, I was incredibly anxious. I've always dealt with anxiety issues uh, in my career, in my past. And so we had just like some frank chats about vulnerability and putting yourself out there. And once you do that, it just kind of eases the tension, eases the anxiety. And um, I still use that to this day. Yeah. I was going to say, does it help now? Because I mean, I definitely feel that too. I remember when we first sold this podcast and they're like, oh, like Stephanie, can you host it? And just being like, oh, I usually always would have our other team members host the shows. And yeah, I liked kind of working behind the scenes. And it definitely was hard, you know, being like, okay, 
you just have to do it. You have to get yourself out there. Like, yeah. So did it help when like afterwards thinking through about her advice? Yeah, it totally did. And I think I always think of this idea of demonstrated performance where it's like, you're nervous about something, you're anxious, you step on stage or you sit in the seat, you put yourself out there and you have a really good performance. And then that just gives you one more step, one more piece of confidence and you keep going and building. And, and, you know, now stuff that I do every day without even looking at my calendar is stuff that I would have just freaked out about all day, you know, Mm -hmm. five years ago. So yep, uh, I think it's just about experience. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I remember even just thinking about doing, um, video meetings. Like when I first was starting out in the corporate world and being like, Oh my gosh, my first meeting, like just so scared and sweaty and nervous, you know, and then now I'm taking like 10 a day and being like, not even thinking twice. So yep. yeah, I think yep. just doing the work and pushing past and knowing that you'll probably fail a couple of times and who cares? <laughs> exactly. That's great. And did you meet Richard Branson when you were there? Yeah, we, we met briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave us uh, a talk, uh, which was awesome. It, it, he talked a lot about um, Virgin's impact program and, and what he's doing there. And so that was really important to us at the time because we were setting up our, our Lisa 110 program. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was cool to hear from him. That's great. So where do you see the next couple of years headed for the fascination? Like, what are you guys building for? What are you doing in stealth mode right now? Like, what are you planning for the world to look like in a couple of years? Yeah, I mean, right now we're really heavily focused on getting the digital product where it needs to be to really deliver on a full transactional marketplace that's cutting edge for consumers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the next couple of years, we want to have a destination that is super engaging. We want to have brand founders engaging with consumers real time in the platform. We want to have people shopping and reading and researching brands and products mm-hmm. all seamlessly and to be able to buy those products in one click, right? Mm-hmm. Right on the fascination.com. So a lot of things have to happen in the background to, to obviously make that work. And then, you know, we're always thinking about, you know, how can we acquire the best customers bring them in most cost effectively. And, you know, it's always on my mind of like delivering really solid, meaningful content to the audience, Mm -hmm. just not just fluff stuff, but stuff that's really, really valuable. Um, And so that's what I think we're, we're trying to win. Well, yeah. It also seems like there's such an opportunity to, I mean, when you have all these brands and they have access to, you know, a lot of insights on their customers or who's coming to their website to then build look like audiences off of those brands. And then all of a sudden you have access to, you know, customers and you're coming from a different angle where maybe if, you know, Lisa would have already gotten in front of a customer two times and they're like, nah, then instead the fascination comes in and they're like, Hey, check out this mattress. It's like a third touch point. That's very separated, but it seems like there's a lot of opportunity there to get insights at a much more accelerated rate than you would get just by yourself. Yes, that is, <laughs> yes. Uh, that is the goal. Um, yeah, there's a there's a whole data infrastructure that we really need to put in place to to get the most out of it. And honestly, like coming from Lisa for so long, I'm still trying to wrap my head around like what that all looks like in terms of uh, affiliate click attribution and uh, you know how we create audiences and uh, how we do product recommendations. So mm-hmm. you know we're only we're only a month old, but we'll get there. And I can tell you that there is such tremendous demand for what you're talking about, just leveraging lookalike audiences, leveraging audiences across 
categories that aren't competitive with one another. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, everyone that comes to the fascination as an interested consumer, if we do it right, it's always going to have similar demographic profiles, right? Yeah. Whether they're a man or a woman. So as you aggregate that at scale, there's a ton of a ton of value for brands to be able to tap into that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like eventually, eventually there'll have to be tools for the merchants as well to be able to interact with all the platforms they're on or like, I mean, you know, a lot of sales are moving towards the edge as a lot of people say, and how do you keep track of that? Like how do these merchants, you know, they're selling on the fascination, they're selling on fancy, they're selling on, not that fancy is the same, but you know, there are quite a few places popping up where, you know, these brands might be like, yeah, I want to sell on that platform or over here, but I don't know if enough tools exist right now to keep track of what you're doing and consolidating it all in one place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be a challenge for these fairly young brands. You know, there's product feed software that'll kind of handle some of that. But at the end of the day, uh, there's manual stuff that's always needed once you're drop shipping and wholesaling and you have retail partners. So, yeah. you know, we're going to be thinking about it from the other side, just the same. You know, how do you manage 100, 200, 300 merchants yeah. uh, and keep them happy? Yeah, crazy. All right, well, let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round's brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Matt? Yeah. First thing, what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I think the convergence of content and commerce is, is going to have one of the biggest impacts. You've got media companies that are converging into commerce. You know, they all want to be transactional. They all want a bigger slice of the pie. They all want more lifetime value extraction from their readership. And then I think on the commerce side, you see brands uh, and retailers who are obviously seeing the cost rising of customer acquisition in the traditional sense and uh, creating really rich content is the only way to do that. So we're kind of diving in right at the intersection with what we're doing at the fascination. And, you know, that's kind of where we saw it going. And that's why I think, you know, we're bullish on where we're headed. Yeah. Well, it'd also be interesting to do a recap episode on like what's happened since some of these brands got into, you know, mixing media with commerce. I mean, I'm thinking about NBC, I think did a whole shoppable TV thing. And I remember seeing them, you know, launch that maybe in February or April last year, but I don't know what actually happened. So it'd be right. fun to do kind of a recap of like, here's who launched in 2020 when it came to mixing media and commerce and here's status update. <laughs> hopefully it will be one of the good ones. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. What's one thing from 2020 that you hope sticks around in 2021? I think, you know, that we've all had to embrace things like this, just getting on video conferences not not having to present ourselves through this facade, you know, in the office, I would have never thought about wearing my hat backwards and, <laughs> and rolling around in athleisure. And uh-huh. now that's just the norm for everybody. Yep. Uh, and kids are on work calls and it's just the whole thing feels a lot more familial. And, you know, even if we do go back to offices, I really have loved that work now feels a little bit closer to home. Mm-hmm because you're in your home, but also because just the interactions you see more than you would if everyone was in an office environment. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. And I think it it definitely brings a more human perspective to, like you're saying, like working together, knowing someone's kids, seeing them in the background. And then you also have more, 
I guess, empathy when, you know, a mom or a dad's like, Hey, I got to go do this with my kids. It's like, Oh yeah, I saw your kid connection. Like, yeah. of course you can. Whereas I'd say prior to this, yeah, not as much of a leniency, right. I guess, for that. Yep. That's a yep. good one. What is the funniest story or best story you can think of when it comes to either building up Lisa or building up the fascination where you're like, Ooh, this, this is a good time or a good story that really sticks in my brain from those years. Oh, we, we've done so many like gimmicky things at Lisa, you know, we were growth hacking like crazy and <laughs> yes, <laughs> we were throwing stuff against the wall. Not all of it stuck. You know, we did a ton of stuff with Barstool Sports. Mm-hmm. We maybe did a few influencer integrations that uh, wouldn't go over so well today <laughs> with certain influencers. Uh, and with Barstool, I feel like they're so edgy <laughs> that they can get yeah. you in trouble all these days anyways. <laughs> They're, they're very edgy and like, you know, we purposefully like we, with all of those podcasters and creators, we're like, go be very authentic. And so yeah. you can't tell Barstool, like tame it down and not be authentic, but yeah. they, they were a huge converter for Lisa for several years. Um, fun. So we did a lot of fun stuff. We, we sponsored Larry, the gambling goldfish, which was a, uh, a goldfish swimming around in the tank on Barstool set. Uh, you know, they, they pulled a mattress, uh, behind a truck with a Santa Claus riding on it, but we've also done a lot more admirable things. Like we did a, a sleep out for the homeless, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've done a lot of cool things at Lisa, um, just in the experiential side of things that, uh, made it fun. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have, a love for the goldfish, the gambling goldfish. I want to go check that out. That actually sounds pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, one, one more thing that we did is uh, I think it was a 2017 NFL draft. You know, it's, it's shown on ESPN and all the, all the players are interviewed in their homes. Mm-hmm. We sent the players that we knew would be interviewed on TV on ESPN, uh, Lisa mattresses. And we had them put their Lisa mattress boxes behind them and their families. And we got, you know, millions of impressions that night because we had Lisa mattresses all yeah. over the air on ESPN's draft. Oh, that's fun. See, I love creative stuff like that where, you know, I mean, as long as it actually converts to, I don't, I always have the question yeah. about like TV, like, does it actually convert or, you know, like what happened after everyone saw the mattress behind them? Did you guys see a big uptick in sales or? I don't remember if we did or not. I think we saw a bit of an uptick, but yeah. I mean, it was such a low cost, like stunt to do Yeah, you know, that it wasn't, yep. it wasn't a swing to the fences, but yeah. Uh, we also did a ton of TV and and Tate at Lisa. And you know, you can really see the the brand awareness effects that TV has, mm-hmm. even though it's insanely hard to track. Yeah. Yep. I agree. What is next on your reading list? Ooh, um, I'm probably gonna do Shoe Dog by Phil. Such Knight. a good one. I love that book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So inspirational. Highly recommend. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? Well, that's that's an interesting question because we may very well have one soon. Mm -hmm. Um, Nice. Yeah. I don't know in what format it'll be. It may be a podcast. It may just be like Instagram TV stories. But Mm -hmm. we really want to interview, kind of just do flash interviews with our brand founders, Mm -hmm. you know, asking about their origin story, asking about what makes their products different, fun facts. Yeah. And I think, you know, a groundswell of really interesting stories like that would be fun. Mm -hmm. Cool. That sounds good. 
And then the last one, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? I mean, I, there's been so many instances of generosity. Um, I think honestly giving me a chance uh, to make the career switch that I did. And this is a bit of a shout out to David, my co-founder, but um, you know, he really took a chance on me. He's, he's been super supportive of me for years and it's really gotten me to where I am today in terms of my career and uh, the place that we're at collectively. So him and the people around me that kind of pushed me to make that leap out of uh, the traditional corporate world of consulting. Yeah. You know, I was really hesitant to do that coming right out of my MBA and, you know, looking at a nice salary. And, you know, he was one of those people that kind of pushed me over the top to do that. And I'm thankful for it. That's really cool. Great story. All right, Matt. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you and the fascination? Uh, So about me, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Hayes, uh, all one word. And then thefascination.com. Go check it out. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Matt. All right. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.